Well, come to page 26 of your notes. I want to look at the remaining miracles. Um, actually, there are three of them, but you've only got two on your notes because I'm going to give you the one in a minute. Um, but I want to look at this healing of the blind man. Come to John chapter 9. And there's a, a blind man. And the disciples ask the question whether he's sinned or whether his parents have sinned. And Jesus says, neither of them. This is that the Son of Man might be glorified. In other words, this man's been blind from birth in order that a day might come when this man, who's 40 years of age, can have his eyes miraculously given to him so that it might be a sign for everybody to remember. He's not, you can think about that, because that's what Jesus says. Think sometimes of God's sovereign purposes. I can start telling stories, but I don't have time. But it's amazing how God doesn't seem to be in a hurry in certain things. And then suddenly he moves. But the picture here, very simply, is that uh, there are suggestions which I tend to believe that this man wasn't just defective in his eyesight, he hadn't got any eyes. Um, just as there's hints in the way it's written that suggest a creative miracle. Um, I've actually seen that happen. I remember once in the city of Madras, I had a whole line of people coming up to be healed and this man came up to me, Eileen was there, and um, and he stood there with an empty eye socket and, he, and I said, well, what can I do for you? He said, Sub, I want a new eye. <laughs> I remember <laughs> that sinking feeling in my heart. <laughs> it was in the very early days when I, you know, and, uh, and I thought, well, the best way to get rid of him is to pray. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you. <laughs> So I laid my hand on this man's empty eye socket and pray, and, and I had the biggest shock of my life. When I took my hand away, there was a perfect eye looking at me. And Eileen said she just wished she had a video camera to catch the look on my face. <laughs> <laughs> and this, I think, is the picture here. And what Jesus did was he took the clay, because what he's, what he's showing is, is a picture of how everyone on the face of the earth by a miracle of recreation have got to be recreated in order that they can see. Now it's in the context of the Pharisees and the scribes harassing him and having all sorts of technical arguments about whether he's the Christ because he didn't come from Bethlehem and, and, and Jesus said of them, he said, now you blind the guides of the blind, he said, you're going to end up in the ditch. And he said, now this is your sin, you claim to see when actually you're blind and therefore your sin remains. See, there's no worse blindness than the blindness that refuses to have its blindness changed into visibility. And that can be basic as far as salvation is concerned, but it can be along the way as God's giving us new revelation. And so this, Jesus took the clay, which is the basic, you know, God made us out of the dust of the earth. So he picks up the dust of the earth, spits on it, which is a picture of his word, 
and then makes it into a paste, sticks it on the empty eye sockets and says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And Siloam means the sent one. That's where the name of the pool. So he goes to the sent one and comes back seeing. And the first thing he saw was Jesus. Amen? That every blind man that will open their eyes, the first thing they see is Jesus, which I think is lovely. And it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, chapter 4 that the, the God of this world has blinded those that do not believe. Lest the glory of the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ might be revealed unto them. And then it goes on to say in verse 6, but God has commanded light to shine to give a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it's all there in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? So God commands light to see. And then they can see. And until they can see, no argument in the world. You see, if you trying to get people to be converted is like trying to sell beautiful paintings to a blind school. Imagine that you're a salesman and your assignment is to sell beautiful paintings in a blind school. Now, there's nothing wrong with the paintings, but the trouble is they can't see. Amen? And that's the world in which we live in. That's why Jesus spoke to Paul and said, Paul, this is the gospel you've got to pray. You've got to pray, first of all, that their eyes are open. We spend so much of our time trying to convince the intellect. And something absolutely supernatural has got to happen. So their eyes are open and they can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now I want to move on because I haven't much time. But I just want to, so that's the next miracle. Words, we've got to understand the nature that's going to bring the harvest in. We're not dealing with uh, a mindset, we're dealing with a spiritual blindness. And it's going to take a miracle to remove that spiritual blindness. But God has got the power to command light to shine. And the gospel that Jesus commanded Paul to preach was not a, a gospel first of forgiveness of sins. That's number four on the list. The first thing he says, you've got to pray for their eyes to be opened. Because if you don't get their eyes open, then it's just like trying to sell beautiful paintings in the blind school. Jesus is beautiful, but they can't see that. So we've got to ask God, I believe, to give us the miraculous power that he exercised there to, to the whole... He said, this is, this is done that, that in order as a, as a model so you can understand how, the need for all men. I just, then I want to go on, it's not in your notes, but I just felt as I was praying this morning I needed to add these things. In fact, in scripture you get three blind men. This one is in John 9 and that's the basic miracle which, which brings them to, to new birth where God creates a total new man who can see. But then the next one you find is in Mark, is in Mark chapter 8. And it's after Jesus has fed the 5,000, after Jesus has fed the 4,000, and he's once again in the boat with the disciples, and they're fussing around because they've taken no bread with them. He's just done these incredible miracles where vast multitudes have had more than enough to eat, and they're fussing around the fact they've got no bread. He gets pretty mad with them. Amen? He says, how is it that you don't understand? And how is it that you cannot see? So it seems to, that it's possible to be even a physical eyewitness of the miraculous power of Jesus and yet still to be spiritually blind. Hello. 
So then, he then, immediately after that, and the verse is about verse 40-something, if you want to look it up, I'm just going to quickly say this because we haven't got a lot of time. I think it's, it's verse 52-ish, between 46 and 52 of Mark chapter 8. Then Jesus then takes a blind man. I want you to notice these things very quickly. This blind man is brought to him, and the first thing that Jesus does is to take him out of his village. Some translations say a small town, but the word actually is a small village. Because you see, so many, many, many people in ministry are people who live in small villages or their own little work or their own little church. And while you live in your own little church with your own little problems, you're blind to the greater purposes of God and he wants to open your eyes. So the first thing Jesus did was to take him out of his village and let's take it out you know, of all the things that occupy your mind and fill your time and let's get out and start to take the big perspective. When they were building these great cathedrals in Europe in the, in the Middle Ages, these craftsmen that were doing all the stonework, what they would do, because they were sort of carving all these different wonderful carvings, but they were focused on these detail work, but part of their exercise was to put down their tools, take a few steps back, and take in the whole grand design, and then they were inspired to go back and do the part that they were called to do. And that's something that every one of us has to do. So he takes him out the village, and he lays hands on him, and this is the only case in scripture where there isn't immediate instant complete healing. Jesus is bending over him anxiously, and I believe Jesus is bending over some of you anxiously as we come to the end of this conference. And he's saying to you, not have you got a lot of good notes, but can you see anything? Has something happened in your spirit that now you're seeing something which you didn't see before, and you've been taken out of your village, out of your local situation, out of your, and now you're beginning to see the greater purpose of God and see how what you're doing fits into that. Now this man was honest enough to say to Jesus, I see men as tree walking, trees walking. In other words, there's been a measure of vision, but I don't see things clearly. If he said, oh yeah, it's fine, I can see everything, I believe he would have walked for the rest of his life with half vision. His honesty caused Jesus to complete the process. And maybe as you've listened to these words, they've been a bit startling and new and, 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 and you're still processing them. Well, let's have the honesty to say, well, Lord, I, I can see something. But it, it, it's vague, shadowy shapes right now. But I do want to see all these things clearly. So Jesus touched him a second time. And this time, his, his, his vision snapped into sharp focus and he saw everything clearly. And what he was doing to that blind man was a picture of what he was doing to those disciples in the boat. That was their spiritual condition. They'd been with Jesus all this time, seen all these miracles, experienced the power of God as an observer, even been used to be instruments of his delegated authority, and yet still they were seen by Jesus as people who couldn't really see. And that could be your condition. And I pray if it's mine that I can see it. I've learned more, I think, in the last two years than I have in the rest of my life. 
my 45 years of ministry. God is on the move, doing something incredibly new. And half of it I don't understand. I don't know what people are talking about, but I'm not going to reject it and run back to my village where I, I understand everything. Amen? I'm open to change. And I don't know quite know where I'm going. I don't know quite what it looks like. But I'm crying out that I might see everything clearly. And one of the things I felt God tell me is that when we come, I am going to do a school of the word. Might as well mention it now. It's going to be from October 25th to October 28th. And I'm going to deal with the book of Revelation as part of the writings of John and how it, it imposes on what we're being called to do right now. I haven't got a title, but it probably will be, um, it'll be something to do with, I don't know. I'll think of the title later. I don't want to say the wrong thing now. But that's what I, I felt God say it to me. Because every time I say, Lord, do you want another school of the word? I'm not trying to do this other than in obedience. And I thought, well, maybe I've come to the end of what I've had revelation of. He says, no, you've got to deal with this. It's going to make, take a lot of work and a lot of research but I want you to pray for me that when I come, I'll be fully, I'll come fully seeing. Amen? Amen? I don't want to come half seeing. I want to come with clear vision so I can help you to see clearly. Amen? Amen? Now we come to the third blind man, which you read about in Mark chapter 10. This is blind Bartimaeus. Now the, the, the interesting point, and this guy, when he hears hears the commotion. He says, who's this? He says, oh, this is Jesus. When he hears it's Jesus, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, help me. And again, they tell him to shut up and keep quiet. Now, again, this is a hint. It's not absolutely guaranteed. But if you read the background to all this stuff, the most likely common cause for blindness was usually syphilis, which is a result of immorality. And there are hints that this was a result of his sin. All right? I'm not saying that dogmatically, but I have a sense of feeling that this was the situation. But what is very clear from the Greek, not so clear in the English, is that when this man comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? He says, he says Lord, help me. And every time you have a general cry of desperation, God will nail you. What exactly do you want? Be specific. So this man cries out, what it literally says in the Greek, which is not clear in the English, is he says, Lord, I want to see again. So here's a man that once saw, has lost his eyesight, possibly through sin, and now is condemned by everyone else to be a beggar on the side of the road. And tell you, beloved, we've got this nation full of pastors and leaders who've been rejected by the church as a bunch of beggars because they fell. God wants them powerfully restored by deep, deep repentance so they can see better in the present than they could in the past. The church is one of the cruelest places to go wrong in. All the scriptures say that if you correct a brother, it's for the purpose of restoration. It's not for the purpose of rejection. You're to recover him back. Amen? Lord, I want to see again. Now they said, oh, shut up and get out of the way. You're just an old beggar. He said, no, bring him to me. And then the man humbles himself before the Lord and the Lord touches him and he sees again. And I'm praying for some of these wounded generals that are scattered around this nation. That's what's going to happen to them. As I'm talking to you, you're thinking of some names. I'm thinking of some names. I'm not going to mention any of them. Amen? Yeah. Oh Lord, that you might see again. 
that they might see again. They might be right there with us in the forefront. People that you and I drew from. And then they got sidetracked. Things went wrong for various reasons. We don't, and now they're like blind beggars saying, Lord, help me. Amen? Amen. And so God's a great God of restored vision. And, and if that's anybody here, which somehow I don't think so, but, but I, I know that I'm triggering on people that you can now start to pray for to that end. But we want people, particularly leaders, who can see. Jesus wants people who can see. Amen. Otherwise, you can't lead anybody anywhere. Then we go on to read about the Pharisees who say, well, we're all right, we don't need to see. You know, you're talking about us. He says, if you had no sin, you, if you had, what's the actual phrase? Let me go and read it. Come, to, come back to John chapter 9 for a moment. Verse 40, then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said, Are we blind also? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Amen? Right, let's move on to the next miracle, which is number 7, and it's on page 27. And I'm just going to, again, touch on this briefly, because this was the miracle which Jesus knew and Jesus deliberately precipitated to bring about his own crucifixion. <laughs> it's a, such a vast subject, and I did touch on this uh, when I was talking about the keys of the kingdom. And, and, it, and it's in that set of tapes. And I'm just going to refer back to it, um, because what I see we're heading up for in the United States of America is a head-on collision with a, a major principality who's known scripturally as the spirit of death. Now God is giving us insight, giving us revelation of who he is and how he works, and many of the ills of our nation and many of the tragedies of our nation are directly attributable to that spirit. And he's got reasons why he can stand on certain territory in the United States. And, of course, this is horribly and tragically true of Europe and of the Balkan countries. Because he, 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 he perpetrates death, and then his power comes through the illegal, violent cause of death. He loves to be a causer of death, and, of course, the whole abortion issue is is his in, is initiation and he is absolutely delighted to cause the death of millions of innocent children every year. And every year it happens, it deepens his entrenched hold upon this nation. Now, it's such a big subject, I'm not even going to attempt to deal with it. It's a specialist subject, but it's, these are the things, sort of things that we're going to be called to address, and we will need to particularly explain these things to the, the SWAT teams of intercessors who are going to start to take on these principalities and pull them down. I'm not sure it's for common digestion of every believer. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 20. He said, by your knowledge, you can offend the consciences of some. So you've got to be careful who you say what to. Jesus didn't say everything to everybody. Sometimes it was the 12, sometimes it was the 70, and sometimes it was the general company of people that just came to listen to him. But I'm just saying enough here to, for you to recognize that that final miracle that Jesus did before he was crucified 
was something that he provoked. You see, he was totally in charge of his own execution and even the timing of it. And the father was telling him what to do when in order to bring it to conclusion on the right day of the feast of Passover so everything fitted historically and eternally into what he was planning to do. That's the total master God that we serve. Amen? Amen. He's like a master chess player that says, okay, let's have a game of chess. And before we start playing, I'm telling you now that I will checkmate you on King's Pawn 3. You can do what you like, but we'll end up in the right place and I'm going to beat you. <laughs> That's my God. And there are certain things about the raising of Lazarus from the dead which are unique. Every other person that was raised from the dead was raised to dead within three days. Jesus deliberately left it for four days. There's deep spiritual significance in those things. I'm not sure I want to open up on these now, but that showed the spirit of death that Jesus was coming now to take authority, not over that temporary period which we've come to call Hades, but he's come to take over death, period. He now, as we read in the book of Revelation, he now has the keys of death and Hades. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 that one of the things that Jesus did was to partake of flesh and blood. There were many glorious purposes for his incarnation, but one of them was that he might take on the spirit of death and render him powerless. He might destroy him, or more literally, the Greek really means he might render powerless him that has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who all their lifetime were in bondage through fear of death. So for those that have come to Jesus, death is a non-event. It's just a doorway to something more glorious. And, and the devil can't decide the day, Jesus decides the day now. Amen? So I can courageously go and do what God tells me to do and the devil cannot kill me one day before it's God's time for me to go to be with him in glory. And I've got to make sure that my prayers don't hinder the perfect timing of God for everybody to leave and to go be with him. On the one hand, I may have to rebuke the spirit of death so it cannot cause people to prematurely precipitate God's will for their life concerning death. On the other hand, we can artificially prolong their life and make their going to glory be a misery instead of a joy. So we've got to be careful how we pray. Death is not a tragedy. It's, it's important that it should be exactly on the right time according to the word of God. So Jesus precipitated his spirit to kill him. It was like, come on, come on, come on, you punch me, then that will give me the legal right to take you out. <laughs> He was totally in charge of his own death. He stayed on the cross as long as it was necessary to complete the payment of all our sins. And when everything was done, when he had robbed the devil of everything, as I briefly explained to you the other day, then he said, right, that's it. It's time to go be with my father. He bowed his head, dismissed his spirit. He died at the moment in time, the moment today when he chose by the will of the father to die. In that process, he beat and conquered that spirit of death. Now, that victory has now got to be implemented powerfully in our society. Amen. And when that thing breaks, we're going to see transformation in our nation. I believe that's why that was the last miracle before he was crucified, because it was the last enemy that he had to deal with. Amen? 
Now the way's clear for the kingdom to come in all its glory and there isn't a demon that can resist that. Now I want to move on to the last thing which is not in your notes. I want to deal with the miracle which took place after Jesus was raised from the dead. It's the eighth miracle and of course it's appropriate it should be number eight because it's the miracle of resurrection. And I left it off somehow and I, I, I just put it on and it, it, of course it's John chapter 21 and it's the story after Jesus was risen from the dead of the miraculous the second time there was a miraculous catch of fish and those two miracles one of which is not in John but it's in Luke chapter 5 but I'm going to mention to it briefly because it helps to, us to understand the other one Peter, who is the spotlight is on Peter as the model man who was transformed into a mighty apostle of God. And Peter had made the commitment to follow Jesus. You read about this in uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 onwards. It, we read there that they left their nets and followed him. So it seems as you read that verse that Peter's days for fishing are over. He's now in full-time ministry. Knowing Peter a little bit by the scriptures and by years of meditation, I love this guy because it so reminds me of me. And I guess most people do because he's so absolutely human and the record of scripture is so, so starkly honest that you say, boy, I can identify with this guy. And then the glory is that this guy became the great apostle Peter. He couldn't pray but he became a mighty intercessor. Everything that you and I can't do, Peter was an expert at. <laughs> but when God had finished with him, he became powerful in these things which he was powerless in. So that should give great encouragement to all of us. Amen? Amen. And what, the thing that was wrong with Peter, which is wrong with so many of us, was that he became strong in his areas of expertise. When it came to fishing, he knew all about the Lake of Galilee. He knew just where those fish shoals would be. And he was a success. He ran his own business. He was uh, a self-made man. And, and he was the boss of his own organization. He left all that to follow Jesus. And then he stepped out to be this fisher of men that Jesus said would happen to him if he became uh, if he followed him. So he goes out to catch men and after months of activity he finds he's not doing as well at catching men as he was at catching fish. And that's the experience of many, many people. They come to Jesus, they get launched in some ministry and because they're new and immature like all of us once were, then we start to step out and try and do the works of God in our own strength. We don't intentionally do that and we don't mean any harm by doing it. I remember listening to a testimony by a, a very famous uh, man, um, Major Ian Thomas. You may have read some of his books. Great man of God. He said for the first, I think, 15 to 20 years of his life, he desperately tried to tell Jesus. He said, I got so weary that one day I, I said, Lord, I can't go on any longer. And God said, good. <laughs> He said, for the last 15 years, he said, I've been trying to live my life through you, and for the last 15 years, you've been trying to live your life for me. He said, now die, and we're going to get somewhere. 
If you read the biography of Hudson Taylor, that man was so able and so efficient in his own strength that for the first 20 years of his ministry, he was running on his own soul power. And God brought him to a total climax which he calls the, the, the crisis of the exchange life. You read his, his, two, his two volume biography and he comes to this crunch point where it's no longer Hudson Taylor doing his best for Jesus, it's Jesus doing his best through Hudson Taylor. And that's when the breakthrough in China came. So here's Peter, after months of trying, he suddenly, not successful, says, well, I'm no good at catching men, let me go back to catching fish, because at least I'm good at that. And he reneges on his commitment, goes back to fishing, and Jesus comes along to the, to the lakeside in Luke chapter 5, and there's Peter feeling a bit uncomfortable because Jesus is around, because he hasn't been to church for the last three months. Hello. He's had reasons why it wasn't convenient to go and he's interested now, he's got his son into the top you know, team of the baseball league and he's done all kinds of successful things um, with, it, with his abilities because he wasn't doing too well in church. You've got lots of people like that in your church. And Jesus comes to him and doesn't scold him, but he, he makes himself needful of Peter. He says, can I borrow your boat because the crowd's pressing me and he draws Peter in to this great teaching occasion and here's Peter the old juices when he used to be so blessed by the word of God they start they start again and then he says right Peter now push out into the deep let's have a catch he said Lord we've toiled all night and taken nothing he said well just just go now he said never they said at your word I'll do it so now he's sailing out it's in the middle of the day, it's a totally crazy time to go fishing, he's tried all night and there's nothing there. It's, all his reasons say, this is the most idiotic thing I've ever done. It's totally, going to be totally unfruitful, but I better, I better do it for Jesus. He goes out into the deep, lets down the net, he gets the biggest catch he's ever had in his life, and not only he can't handle it, but all the other guys around him can't, he has to get them to help him to carry in the catch. Now, that's what's going to happen to many of you and to the churches which you lead when you learn to be a fisher of men that's where Jesus is doing every detailed direction of that thing. Peter sees it. He falls on his knees and he says, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinful man. I've seen the sin of doing my best to work for you rather than allowing you to work through me. Have you seen that sin as deeply perhaps as we need to see it? And Jesus says, don't be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. Then Peter has this other failure which we talked about the other day and now he's now um, disqualified himself because he betrayed the Lord and, and lacked the courage because he was trying to love Jesus with the wrong kind of love. If he was a total failure, he's going to go back to his fishing because what else to do? and uh, some of the other disciples go with him because you know if you're a leader you will lead people whether you intend to or not wherever you're going so he led a lot of other people off into fishing and so Jesus comes to this lakeside in John chapter 1 he's risen from the dead and, he, and they've had the same experience they've toiled all night they've caught nothing and here's Jesus on the, on the lakeside saying did you catch anything? knowing perfectly well they hadn't because he'd told all the fish to keep out the way till he told them <laughs> And they said, he said, 
lower the net on the other side. Now, those boats that they had in those days would be no bigger than this table here. So all we're saying is, instead of lowering the net that side, pull it up and go along on this side. Now, what possible difference could that make? <laughs> What's he saying? Well, he's saying what I was teaching you to the other day. He's saying, look, if you learn to fish in the flesh, you're going to catch nothing. If you learn to fish in the spirit, you're going to have a, a multitude of fish that you can't handle. It's all the difference in the world between, between a man of the flesh and a man of the spirit. You can do exactly the same thing. It looks identical from the outside, except to very spiritually sensitive people. You can preach in the flesh and be very impressive. You can preach into the, in the spirit and people's lives are transformed. You can administer very efficiently in the flesh, but if you administer in the spirit, you'll find that the spirit of God is supernaturally in everything you do. Many churches will see financial transformation when they stop trying to deal with the finances in the natural and make it as supernatural as any other dimension of that church life. I only want administrators who are men of faith. In the early church, they wouldn't have a, have a guy help at tables unless he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit and could go and work miracles on the side. Amen? That was the early church. It's exactly what they were like. Stephen was a deacon. But his powerful healing ministry was so powerful it was shaking the city. But he was helping at tables. That's what he was chosen for. And so there's this absolute need, which I just felt God wanted to emphasize as we close, and I did touch on it somewhat yesterday. He said, I want you to come back to this and make this the focus of the close of this conference. That was the final miracle. That was the resurrection miracle, which John wants to leave burning in our spirits as he brings his gospel of John to the close. What Peter learned was that he had to do everything by the Spirit. Now, the relationships in the team weren't all that wonderful. There was family ties which were pretty strong. You find that James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee, with their mother, they were pushing to be the most important family in the kingdom. And the sons of Jonah, Andrew and Peter, they were mad at them because that's the job that they wanted. So there was, there was tension and competition in that team. And, they, and you've, got, you've got Simon the Zealot, who, who hated the Roman conquest, and then you've got Matthew, who was a collaborator with the Romans. So how did those two get on? There are all kinds of tensions in that team. And you read uh, by the lakeside that it's still not cured, because here's Peter, because of his loudmouth, brash ways, and this sense of unworthiness, which is probably what made him so loudmouth. He kept his distance from the spiritual stuff. He was a practical guy, and the spiritual stuff, you know, people like John did all that stuff, but he, he, at least I can fish. At least I can do the practical things. Now, you get some people that are never there in the worship time. They're busy doing the administration. Their fulfillment is in things, and they don't get on too well with people. Computers are predictable. People are inexplicable. Even computers these days can give you a ride. So here now, in this lakeside, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he's done this fantastic miracle, 
And it's dawned on Peter at last that the love that Jesus has for him is unconditional. For the first time, he's allowing himself to enjoy intimacy with Jesus, that he's actually as much loved by Jesus as John is. Although he can see John's that sort of spiritual that's always on Jesus' lap. John feels the acceptance. He hasn't got the same problems that Peter has. Peter feels rejected and on the edge, and he feels these sort of cross-currents in the team. And he, he resents, really, the fact that, that John has got this special in with Jesus that he doesn't have. In fact, you know, that so-and-so, he went to have supper with the pastor three times last month. He didn't invite me once. So now Peter has found that he can just walk with Jesus with unveiled intimacy, not because he's great, but because Jesus has decided to love him. And the very infusion of that intimacy is what's going to transform Peter. It's being close to Jesus that's going to make Peter Jesus-like. Hello? There's no other way to get like Jesus except to be intimate with him. The branch has got to be right into the vine, otherwise it can't draw on the sap of the vine. If it hangs a respectful two inches from the vine, the, the, the sap will not jump the gap. And the branch will wither and die. Amen? So he said, unless you abide in me, and my words abide in you, he said, you will not be able to do a darn thing. But if you do, you can do anything. Peter has at last got the message. And as he walks arm in arm with Jesus down the lakeside, he's got no pretense, he's got no brownie marks, but somehow, for some reason, this incredible Jesus loves him with all his heart, and at last he's getting the message, he just loves me. And they're starting to talk intimately. Now, John has a problem with this. Because this Peter was the one that betrayed him. At least John went and, and took, took a chance and stood there. He was there right by the cross with, with Jesus' mother. He didn't run away like a scared rabbit. He was there, and Jesus could say, behold your mother, behold your son. He, he was one of those that had the courage not to run away like a scared rabbit. So he had every reason to feel pleased with himself. Can you hear me? And this Peter, who makes all these loud, brash noises and then runs away like a scared rabbit, I mean, I, I knew he wasn't really fit for our team. There's Jesus walking arm in arm with this guy, having the intimacy with him that only I and Jesus enjoyed before. What are they talking about? I bet he's talking about me. What are they saying? This Peter, he's trying to push me out of my special place in the team. What's he, what are they talking about? Peter looks back, sees him following, and says, Oh, my beloved brother. No, he doesn't. He said, he said, what's he following us for? And Jesus rebukes Peter in a gentle way and then tells Peter a prophetic word of how he's going to die. <laughs> it's all there in John 21. You read it. He said, and if, I, if I keep him alive till I come, what's that to you? He's prophesying the longevity of John. On the other hand, he's prophesying the crucifixion of Peter. It's all there in John 21. He knows exactly how it's all going to work out, and it's all God's plan. It's not the malice of the devil. 
it may be the instrument, but it's the sovereign will of God that it should work out this way. Then they get together in the upper room and the, the Holy Spirit says, it's none of your business what went on there. So we have ten days in the upper room and we're not told a darn thing of what happened there. All we know is that the guys that came out the upper room were totally different to the guys that went in. They went in afraid, they came out bold, they went in unbelieving, came out full of faith, they went in divided and came out in indivisible unity. Perhaps the greatest miracle is what happened between Peter and John. Up to the time they went into the upper room, you will not find Peter and John ever doing anything together. They just really didn't like each other and they did their best to avoid each other. But after they come out together from the upper room, the, the love of God, the agape of God has been poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And I suspect, although the Bible doesn't give us any insight into this, that a deep, amazing reconciliation took place between Peter and John. They came out absolutely loving each other. And all we read about in the book of Acts is Peter and John. Peter and John. Peter and John. No one cares who preaches, it doesn't matter. You know, oh Peter, you preach and we'll, we'll be with you, brother. We're standing with you. So he spoke from amongst the eleven. He was the voice, but it was like a rugby scrum, if you know anything about rugby. They were there to push him over the line, to make the touchdown. They didn't care who was the instrument, they were all in it together to make sure they got the victory. Amen? Now that was the last miracle that Jesus did. He said, if you will stop trying to do anything in the flesh and learn to always lower the net on the other side. Make sure it's always in the spirit and of the spirit. Then you're going to reap, you're going to reap such a harvest in what were otherwise empty waters where you've tried before and not seen anything. You're going to be so overwhelmed with the catch that you can't handle it. And it's going to just depend on a both width Flesh, spirit, looks so similar on the outside, but the motivation is totally different. If you do it in the spirit, and see, it's Paul says, pray at all times in the spirit. He says that twice. It's always got to be in the spirit. Sometimes it's with the spirit, which means speaking in tongues. Sometimes it's with the understanding, which means you speak ordinary language. But it's always in the spirit, praying at all times in the spirit. Jude says the same thing. It says in, in James's letter that Elijah, it literally says in the Greek, it, it, it says prayed earnestly. What it says in the Greek was Elijah prayed in his prayers. That's what it literally says. He actually prayed in the spirit in his prayers. It was the spirit prayer. And so it was powerful. And so in a new, I think, much more sensitive way, we're going to say, Lord, we want to become men and women of the Spirit. We want to love in the Spirit, we want to pray in the Spirit, worship in the Spirit. Everything is Spirit-controlled in the last detailed literal sense. Every day I want the Spirit to have His way in me. I want to cast out demons, heal the sick. I want to be the Spirit of God's finger to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? And if we can come to live that way, then I feel we're going to see 
the same glorious breakthrough. Amen.